My guest is Simon Hicks. Simon Hicks is Professor of Comparative Politics at the European University Institute in Florence. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hi, Paul. Right. So, Simon, you've been uh, tracking and predicting the outcome of European prompt elections for, for quite some time now. Before we delve into some of the detail, could you give me some of the, the headline predictions you are currently making for the, the next European parliament elections, of course, taking place uh, 6th and 9th of June this year? So the main thing we're finding is um, a significant increase in votes for MEPs and groups to the right of the European People's Party. So around about a quarter of all seats in the European Parliament for the first time will be to the right of the EPP in the two groups, ECR and ID. And ID could well emerge as the third largest group in the Parliament. Um, as a result of this, the second big prediction is that the shift to the right will mean the average member of the parliament will no longer be in the Liberals, that person will be in the EPP. And this makes a difference because that average member of the parliament determines what sort of coalitions form in the parliament. And let's just remind our listeners what ID and ECR means, please, okay? Okay, so ECR is the European Conservative Reformist Group, that's the group where the Polish Law and Justice Party sit, and ID is the identity and democracy group. So that's the group where uh, Le Pen sits and other sort of more radical right parties sit in the European right. Parliament. And Alternativa für Deutschland, correct? Or AFD, yes, yeah. were in ECR and now sit in ID with Le Pen, yes. Right. Right. Back to you. Sorry, I interrupted you. No worries. And so the, the second thing we, we note is that the because of this shift to the right in the parliament, the average MEP is now in the EPP, which which means that the EPP suddenly become the pivotal party in the parliament, determining whether to lean leftwards or whether to lean rightwards. And for the first time, we may be able we may see coalitions on legislation and law being passed that involve the EPP voting with this radical right block against the sort of centre and the centre centre left. And if they did that. They would have a majority for the first time, we say. Right. Could you explain a bit uh, in relatively layman's terms your methodology? Because I'm bound to press you a bit on we're four months out from the actual elections, but your findings, I know you 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 fill them with lots of caveats and health warnings about we're not there yet, but there are, you know, the official campaign has not even started yet. So just in layman's terms, explain your methodology, please. Yeah, so uh, the way to think of it is, you know, there's a, if you can forecast elections, one way of doing it is to say, is to have a public opinion poll and say, how would you vote if an election were held tomorrow? And then you extrapolate the seat numbers from that. So there's various different websites that do that. For example, Europe Alex does a very good job doing that. And they amalgamate the polls and they say, what would happen if the election were held today? And so that's really what in political science terms we call a now cast, because it's what would happen if the election were now. Right. What we're doing slightly different is, we take those polls and we try and predict what's going to happen four or five months from now. And the way we do that is we look at what the polls were like four or five months before the 2019 elections and what the polls were like four or five months before the 2014 elections. And we say, what changed in that period? How well do the polls predict what happens? What do we know about the parties? How big they are? What political family they come from? And so on. And so what we find is the polls predict around 70% of of the performance of parties four or five months later, and other things also add to that. So, you know, we know that green parties do slightly better than their poll standings in European elections, and populist right parties do slightly better than their poll standings. So, in a sense, there's a small number of voters who vote on European level issues or want to kind of signal they care about environment issues or signal that they care about immigration. And so they, instead of going out and voting for the mainstream left or mainstream right, they go out and vote for the greens or the radical right. So, that's what happened in 2014 and 2019. If the same kind of thing happens now, 
we'd expect that to happen in these elections. So the poll standings are about 70% of what's likely to happen. And the rest is a little bit of extra votes for the Greens and a little bit of extra votes for the radical right and a little bit less votes for the centre-left and the centre-right. Okay, so although we're four months out, as I said, uh, am I right in saying certain sort of political media in Brussels uh, picking up on the fact that these predictions that you're making and some of your colleagues elsewhere in the academic community uh, are going to not change that much and that the cosy... Well, the cosy coalition, if you like, informal coalition of the so-called centrist parties, which has worked until now, EPP, European People's Party, Socialists, and, and the Liberals, and the Renew Group, is about to get a bit of a, uh, an awakening. And that cosy coalition, which has existed until now, will not be the order of the day quite in quite the same way after the next elections. Is that correct? Well, that is correct. I mean, that 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 grand coalition, or now after the last elections, we started calling it a super grand coalition because not only was it the centre left S and D and the centre right EPP, they also had to involve the Liberals. So it's actually three parties in the centre in in that coalition. That right. coalition will still have just over fifty percent of the seats, but because those parties aren't, you know, 100% cohesive on all votes, there's a pretty good chance that they won't even be able to win a majority on some key votes. We also know that on some issues in the current parliament and in previous parliaments, you can predict what kind of coalition forms. So on some issues, we see a centre-right coalition on issues like liberalising the single market. On some issues, we see a centre-left coalition with the Liberals voting with the Greens and the left against the EPP on issues like environment and often on migration questions. And on some issues, often on foreign policy and international trade, we see a grand coalition in the middle. But what's going to change is that centre-left coalition where the Liberals vote with the left will no longer have a majority. And that'll be the first time ever in the parliament that that coalition of a sort of centre plus left will not have a majority. And that could really be significant on some policy issues like environment, because we saw in this parliament a lot of very tight votes with the EPP voting against S&D, where the socialists supported by the Liberals and the Greens were in favour of a more ambitious climate change agenda. Mm. And the EPP and the parties to the right were saying, no, we want to slow down those ambitious goals. We want to protect industry, protect farmers. And of course, we're seeing farmers on the streets in many capitals across Europe. That block of the sort of, you know, climate sceptic, if you like, that block is going to have a majority in this parliament. So it's going to be very hard for the commission to get anything new through the parliament on environment policy. The, the, the EPP and the socialist group have been, you correct me if I'm wrong, have been gradually losing seats for 10, 15 years now. They still remain the majority parties, uh, the biggest parties in the parliament, but it seems like an inexorable decline. Is there any, do you detect any signs that these two groupings in particular are uh, facing yet again another decline. Uh, fighting back, though, are they saying they're not accepting the inevitability of this yet again decline in their numbers? Well, it, what's interesting is we do see, for example, some centre-right parties and some centre-left parties coming back from the sort of very low standings of five or six, seven years ago, but they're nowhere near back to where they were 10, 15 or 20 years ago. So, for example, you know, we saw SPD in Germany do very well at the last German election, and now they're back really down in the polls. We're seeing the PPP, the PP in, in Spain coming back, but again, they're nowhere near back to where they were even 10 years ago. And so when these parties sort of start to make some growth back from their very low standings, they're not, they're not getting back to the sort of heydays of when these were the big bulk parties that dominated national and European politics. So we're seeing a huge fragmentation of votes across Europe, and that fragmentation is, is 
all across the political spectrum on the left and on the right. And on top of that, we're seeing a swing to the right. So you add those two things together and you see a decline in the power and influence of the two biggest blocks in the European Parliament. Right. I'm going to throw something at you, a, a quote from uh, Julian Priestley, who, as you know, was the Secretary General of the European Parliament from 1997 to 2007. And, you know, he's in, in known as uh, obviously a huge champion of the European Parliament almost unconditionally. But in a book he wrote a year after leaving uh, his role in the European Parliament, a, a book called Six Battles That Shape Europe's Parliament, he makes the following uh, statement. And it's quite a lengthy quote, so bear with me. This is written in 2008 by way of context. The embryonic European political parties have yet to make any discernible impact on public opinion. Furthermore, the messages put out by the by the European party bodies, whether from the political groups in the parliament or from the parties themselves, are hard to distinguish from each other. This is the killer quote. In the unlikely event of any potential voter reading the manifestos of the PPE, the PP centre-right party, the socialists and the liberals, they would find large parts completely interchangeable. This is the downside of the cross-party collaboration, which has been so necessary to, to take the union forward and to enhance the role and influence of the parliament. So I just wonder whether moving 15 years on, those the, that consensus building, which is a kind of mainstay of the European parliament throughout the legislature, once the elections are out of the way, is no longer there. And, and it's kind of sowed the seeds of this now, this rather more stark picture you're painting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty, if you like. So the mainstream parties, centre-right, centre-left, centrist parties, broadly agree on a quote-unquote, you know, pro-European agenda, i.e., you know, they're not sort of Eurosceptic, and broadly they support the project, they support the single market, they support EU actions in a lot of areas. But we're seeing increasing differentiation between Social Democrats and the EPP on the type of things they'd like to see the EU do. So environment is one clear example where there are really very big differences now between mainstream left and mainstream right at the national level and increasingly mainstream left and mainstream right at the European level. Migration is another issue. And these two issues are where the centre right is being pulled rightwards by the growing votes to their right. And a lot of mainstream parties on the centre right are really torn they're really facing the dilemma. Do we do business with these guys to the right of us or do we try and ignore them? And, and I think, you know, at the national level, we've gradually seen that question being asked in country after country. The latest one, of course, is Germany. Um, and I think now we're going to see exactly that question at the European level, where largely in the European Parliament, the EPP has said, we have a cordon sanitaire, we don't do business with these guys, we're going to carry on doing business with the socialists and with the liberals, and that's enough for us. I think now we're going to see fights inside the EPP about that. You can see Maloney in Italy in government with Forza Italia, and we're going to see, we see debates in, in the Netherlands about who's going to go into government with Wilders, and we see in, across Scandinavia different parties on the centre-right in government or you know, either uh, sitting around a cabinet table or having these parties supporting them from the back benches. So now I think Germany is the country to watch, and I think the CDU is the party to watch in Germany, We've got three land, three regional elections coming up in Germany, in East Germany, where the AFD could well win those elections. And then there's going to be a, a, a big dilemma facing the CDU. Do they offer to go into government with the AFD in one or two of these lenders? If they do, that will, I think, have big repercussions on not only on Berlin, but also on Brussels, because it'll be a CDU, the biggest party inside the EPP, tilting rightwards. And I think that could pull the EPP in that direction, too. As a, a sidebar, what is your take on 
SPIDs and counter data? Is the process still alive and kicking or is it in its death throes or somewhere in between? Probably somewhere in between. I mean, in a sense, it might actually survive this time round by default uh, because, right. you know, the incumbent, uh, von der Leyen, is likely to announce in the next week or so she wants to be the lead candidate for the EPP because she'd like to stand again. Uh, and then as a result of that, we will then have the spits and candidate process all over again. The key question for me is whether or not the media cover it, whether or not there's engagement of the public. So we saw last time round, in fact, the last two times round, there was media coverage in some countries in Western Europe, largely ignored in Southern Europe, largely ignored in Eastern Europe. Um, it's going to be interesting to see whether or not a candidate from the populist right emerges or is put forward by these guys. And whether or not then there's big public debates between that person and von der Leyen, I can imagine publics across Europe, the media wanting to tune in to a sort of set piece debate with mm. von der Leyen against a populist right politician. Depends who they who they nominate. But but I think that the jury's still out on whether or not that process is going to engage the public or not. Even if it doesn't engage the public, I expect von der Leyen will be nominated by the government. I don't think she's going to have such an easy ride through the next parliament to get her majority. Just to remind our listeners, so she sure. put herself forward on behalf of the EPP as their candidate. Let's assume the sake of argument that she gets through and she becomes endorsed by the European Council, heads of state, the next president of the European Commission, serving her second term. But then, as people often forget, as you're about to explain, she has to undergo a vote in the, the new European Parliament in the plenary, presumably taking place in July. And so, yeah, tell us what happened in the last time around 2019 and what you think is going to happen now in 2024. Exactly the right. So the, the, the issue is, I think, not whether or not she'd be endorsed by the governments. I think she probably would be endorsed by the governments. But the question is, will she then win a majority in that new parliament elected in June? And she has to win actually a majority of all of the seats. So, you know, right. she has to what we call, you know, uh, she has to win a majority of all the MEPs, not just a majority of those voting, taking part in the vote. So, right. You know, an EPP last time round could rely on the support of that grand coalition, the socialists, the liberals, and actually the greens as well. I'm not sure it's going to be that easy this time round, particularly if there's members of S and D in the in the centre left saying, "Look, the EPP is tilting rightwards." She's, mm. you know, it all depends what she sort of says in her campaign. If she starts to to backpedal on environment issues, I mean, we saw this week the Commission watered down its environment proposal. In, in response to the farmers, you know, that sort of thing is going to upset the centre left in the European Parliament. And I'm not sure they're going to be so, so eager to back her again for a second term if that happens. So you think it's more than a theoretical possibility that she does not actually survive an effective vote of confidence by the European Parliament in July? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think it's not a foregone conclusion. Um, and I, I think a lot of it will depend on what sort of promises she makes during that campaign. Um, how far she tilts to the right, what sort of noises the CDU make during that process as her sort of mother party, if you like, and um, what sort of concessions she might try and offer to the socialists in the next commission. So she's got a, she's going to have to have a very delicate balancing act this time round, far more delicate than last time round. Let's kind of zoom out a bit then, Sam, to finish up this great conversation. As I said in the introduction, you've been following this stuff for quite some time. You've been crunching the numbers for over 25 years, to my knowledge, maybe long, even longer. Could you, if you were to try and com compare and contrast the European Parliament when you first began studying it as a very, very young student or 
young lecturer at the European Parliament today, 2024. What are the what are the things strike you the most in terms of how the Parliament has has evolved in that 25, 30 year period? That's a great question. So when I first started studying it around 20, 25 years ago, the Parliament was in a sense the new kid on the block. There was a, lots of it was lots of exciting new young MEPs, a whole new generation of politicians going into the Parliament. The Parliament had just been given powers by new powers by the then Maastricht Treaty, and then the Amsterdam Treaty gave them some more power. The Parliament was getting its teeth into some big peace legislation for the first time, and and throwing its weight around in Brussels and. And, you know, now we then went through this period where the parliament was the sort of center of interest in politics in Brussels. Everyone wanted to engage with the parliament. Everyone wanted to talk to the MEPs. And my sense over the last seven or eight years is the attention shifted back to the governments, oh. shifted back to the European Council as the EU has really been dealing with a whole series of crises. You know, the, yeah. uh, the, the financial crisis first, then, you know, the migration crisis, then Brexit, then COVID. I mean, a lot of the attention has shifted back towards the council, a lot of budgetary questions, foreign policy questions, a lot of issues where the parliament does not really have power. And so I think I think we've now seen a, a, the parliament recede a little bit from that peak of around 10 years ago. Their real powers, of course, their formal powers are as a co-legislator. Yep. And that means, of course, that they are powerful as and when the European Commission comes out with proposals for legislation. In periods, as you say, of, of crisis, or especially also the beginning of a new commission, when uh, new proposals aren't flowing out every five minutes, all of a sudden the Parliament finds itself out of the plot. Is, is that a fair comment? That's fair. I mean, so I think these days it's probably more helpful to think about key policy issues on which the EU does still rely on legislation. So one, of course, is environment, where yeah. EU still passes a lot of environment legislation. Another one is migration. We saw the sort of migration pact passed. So that's the EU rules on asylum and refugees, which are passed through legislative acts and the parliament has power. Another one is trade agreements, international trade agreements. So we think about some of the areas where the parliament still has teeth and I, I think there's still a lot of action, a lot of politics that will happen on those. And I, I really do think the one to watch is going to be the environment, because the EU does have a very ambitious agenda for creating a, a more a carbon neutral economy in Europe, for Europe to be a sort of world leader on these sorts of policy issues. And, and I don't think it's going to be quite so easy for the EU to take that role with the type of parliament that we're expecting to have after June 2024. Okay, but to finish off, then, uh, just on a point of information, Simon, will you and your colleagues be updating your, your surveys and your analyses between now and the actual election? Yeah, we're discussing that now when the next round of the forecasts are going to come. So we're, we're expecting to do that in the next four or five weeks. And, you know, watch this space. <laughs> and you won't be, but you don't expect huge differences between now and I don't think election. so. I mean, looking, I don't think so. If anything, we may see, you know, even more growth in support for the populist right. But I think that the, the general story of a big shift rightwards, big block of seats to the right of the EPP, and a shift in the average member of the parliament rightwards. I think those big stories, those big narratives, I don't think are going to change much between now and June. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Simon Hicks, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Paul.